Welcome to Illumin America, a podcast created by the U.S. Baha'i Office of Public Affairs. Hi, everyone. My name is James Samimi Farr, and I'm the media officer for the Baha'i Office of Public Affairs. This is our first episode of Illumin America, our podcast where we highlight constructive solutions to some of America's most pressing issues. We're going to kick off with the first in a short series of interviews concerning economic inequality hosted by our economic justice discourse officer, Nagar Abai. Today, Nagar will be talking to Russell Crumnow and Sharona Schuster from an organization called Convergence. Convergence is a nonprofit that convenes individuals and organizations with divergent views to build trust, identify solutions, and form alliances for action on critical national issues. Let's check in with Nagar. Russell, Sharona, thanks so much for making the time to be with us today. Uh, we've been talking with different groups about the aspect of their work that has to do with creating conditions for constructive dialogue on issues that often seem intractable and inherently divisive. And convergence tackles such issues head on, bringing together different actors with the aim of finding credible policy solutions. So to start us off, Sharona, in DC, there are a lot of organizations that focus on policy. What is it that Convergence does and what's distinctive about its approach? Sure, so Convergence brings together leaders, um, particularly focusing on bringing together leaders across the ideological spectrum and across different sectors. And we um, engage them in sustained dialogue for you know a year or two year period. They're, what they're doing is they're tackling, as you said, these seemingly intractable problems facing the country. And as they reach agreement, we support them to take action together to promote the ideas and the solutions that they've developed and to apply them within their own sphere as appropriate. Um, and there's a few things I think that maybe, you know, make us different than some of the other groups in DC that are working on policy. Um, when we pick an issue, we spend a lot of time researching that issue mm -hmm. and talking to a really wide variety of experts, really trying to get a 360 perspective on the issue. We're neutral, so we're trying really to learn from the experts. And our work is really emergent. Like, we don't start with a solution in mind. We don't start with a particular frame in mind. We kind of um, build that frame through our conversations with um, experts, and then we kind of test and refine it over time. When we tackle a problem, we try to define it in a way that will promote collaboration and cooperation. So one of our longest standing projects that now has become its own nonprofit is a project that was on transforming K through 12 education. It started in 2013 with a bunch of interviews and it was, first it was a little hard for the project team to figure out what was the angle. So they finally kind of honed in on this frame of reimagining education for the 21st century and really trying to think about not just tinkering on the edges of the current system, but thinking about like, how do you envision a system that really helps every child to thrive and to fulfill their potential? And so that frame was really motivating and inspiring to people. And it also meant that they weren't gonna rehash the same debates that they'd been stuck in for so long. So by looking forward to and designing the future together, I think it was one of those frames that really promoted collaboration. Another thing that's different about us is we kind of really intentionally try to help build trust and relationships. So we're bringing together people who don't know each other, sometimes don't like each other, or who have stereotypes about each other. And so we really try to give them opportunities to understand each other's perspectives more, to get underneath their positions and to really see where their values and their interests align. Um, we make sure people are eating together. We kind of intentionally seat people next to people that they maybe don't know or that, that we think you know there's an opportunity for them to overcome some barriers um, by getting to know each other better. And then we spend a lot of time also 
individually with each of the dialogue participants, which I think is distinct. So like after each meeting, we will call each of the participants and really try to get their thinking. How do they think things are going? What should we be focusing on that we're missing? What's working, what's not? And you know, what are any doubts or concerns that they have about the potential of the process? And then we do shared learning, which I think is another maybe unique experience. Um, sometimes that means like the group will undertake research because there's things that they feel like they don't know that are in the way of reaching agreement. Sometimes it means um, that they will go and speak to people who have direct lived experience. So we've had, for example, in our um, Reducing Recidivism project, we've had participants go and speak to people who are currently in jail to really ask, like, are these ideas that we're generating, do they feel relevant to you? Do they resonate with the actual challenges that you're facing? So I think those are some of the things that distinguish us. Great, that's really helpful. Can you say more about kind of the consultative nature of the process? So the people you're bringing together aren't necessarily folks that would be in the same room right. talking to each other. Yeah, so I think in terms of like the consultative nature, I'd like to talk just a little bit about like the atmosphere that we create. So we really try to create an atmosphere that's characterized by dignity, by like mutual respect, where everyone um, knows that the conversations are confidential, but also where everyone is free to, to really speak from the heart and just to say what they believe and that open disagreement is acceptable. We need a space where people can be frank and really open. And I think we work with professional facilitators. And then we also come in with this attitude that we trust that people want to make a difference. You know, we have an attitude where we hold people in high positive regard. And I think all of those things set kind of the contours of the conversation in a really positive way that actually helps to promote better idea generation and more innovative thinking. So maybe Russell, we can talk a little bit about a project that you led last year called Working Up, uh, which aimed at facilitating increased economic mobility for low-income workers. Can you tell us more about what that involved? So the question in front of us for this group to give this specific example of, of the type of work Sharona was describing was how do we increase upward economic opportunity and mobility, especially for low-income Americans through work? So we entered this debate with the belief that everyone wants to think that America is a place with a quality of opportunity. And if you work hard, you can move up and you can do better than your parents did. And it's not been true for everyone. It's been true for many people through the middle of the 20th century. It's increasingly not been the case in recent decades. More and more people are actually uh, working longer hours um, and, and not earning more than their parents did at a comparable age. And so this group set out to uh, think about solutions to that challenge. And so what that meant in this project was uh, we had stakeholders, as we call them, representing companies like Walmart and McDonald's, IBM. Uh, so companies with, with certainly with knowledge workers, but with many frontline hourly wage workers sitting at a common table with stakeholders representing workers themselves, so organized labor, as well as other advocacy groups who are often at odds with those employers um, in many other contexts. But critically, it wasn't just uh, a conversation between people representing large businesses and people representing workers. It also included other important cross-sector perspectives, a community college president, uh, some philanthropic leaders who are funding smart work in the space, um, a couple of uh, key faith-based leaders, and then a number of people from outside Washington who are close to the lived experience of low-income Americans who are doing work on the ground, who are doing job training, who are doing economic development. We also had right and left-leaning policy thinkers. So uh, it was a really diverse group geographically, 
with regard to race and ethnicity and gender, and critically with regard to sector, because what we found is that many of the usual suspects have been talking about these issues for a long time and are very well-intentioned and have done a number of important things. We honor their work, we built on their work, we studied their work. We'd not seen a table quite like this built where we had a higher education leader sitting next to a senior person in the HR department at Walmart, sitting next to um, a more progressive advocate that's often at odds with Walmart, sitting next to a community-based person who uh, really understands what it's like to juggle hourly wage work and child care and your schedule and being on a knife's edge and, and deeply financially insecure. We were able to come to an interesting set of agreements because of the players at the table paired with the powerful methodology Sharona described that involves shared learning and really an arc from initial trust building um, over the course of the dialogue in the 18 months we met to really co-creating together a set of solutions that would move the ball on this important issue. No, that's really great. Can you share just a little bit more about this notion of shared learning experiences? I mean, why is that even necessary? Sure. So there are a couple of components to that. One is we did conduct listening sessions with people who themselves face barriers to opportunity. Mm -hmm. So some of the partners that were a part of the dialogue helped set those up. Mm -hmm. It's very hard to discount someone's experience or caricature it when you've heard someone mm -hmm. describe in a very powerful way what their day really looks like. And the idea of moving up and climbing a ladder of opportunity if the floor underneath you is very uncertain and shaky is incredibly difficult. And hearing that from, from a person's perspective versus you know, one of us talking about it was very powerful. But broadly, to answer your question, shared learning was important because everyone we invited knew a lot about the issue from their own angle. They didn't necessarily have a 360-degree view, and they not necessarily sat in a room um, with people who disagreed with them and had a chance to listen and learn and ask questions in a respectful context. Mm -hmm. That didn't mean that any individual changed their fundamental orientation or uh, entered the room strongly believing one thing and, and left believing something completely different. Uh, but one can hold on to one's strongly held beliefs about the right public policy approach or, or the right attitude about an issue and filling in context around it and deeper understanding of other people's perspectives and why they think the things that they do. And so if we wake up in the morning and we work for a large company that's answerable to shareholders and has a balance sheet to meet, we have different choices in front of mm -hmm. us than if we wake up and we work for a nonprofit advocacy group that's trying to move the ball um, uh, from a certain uh, policy angle. And so we were really able to do some shared learning together that involved outside speakers coming in, that involved mm -hmm. compiling existing reports and studies on this issue of stagnant upward mobility, that involved uh, looking a little bit at what other countries had done to some extent. And that was all very powerful for us to do, not at our own desks, in our own offices, in our own context, but in a room where we, that we never sit in with people from different perspectives under the guidance of a project team and a very skilled professional facilitator. Mm, that's great. If I can just add also, I think it builds trust amongst the participants with one another. Um, I think it also helps to equalize some of the potential power dynamics in the group that everyone recognizes that they have a part of the story, but not the whole story, and that everyone has something to learn. And I think it can also be something that continues to unify the group and help them to come from a more collaborative stance. Now that's really helpful. So Russell, with a group like this, there are in inevitably some challenging dynamics that you face. What were some of these? How did you address them? And were there some breakthroughs that maybe uh, you could share or highlight for us? Sure. There were challenges and there were breakthroughs. Um, and I think um, the, the folks in the group would uniformly say they had a very positive experience, but it wasn't as if every moment of the conversations was easy, right? It, listening across difference is very hard. We have very little... Uh, 
experience with that in our day-to-day lives. And so those aren't muscles that we've developed and made strong. And listening across difference in a way where you really want to seek to understand what the person is saying is particularly hard versus just waiting for them to be quiet so you can make <laughs> your own point. Because so I would say an early success, and, and just about all of our projects I think do this, wrote a set of principles we all would agree would be a bit of a North Star for the effort. And then as we came up with, with specific tactics or proposals that might be in our final solutions that we created, we put them against those principles and questioned, did they yeah. move them forward or not? So to give you an example from this particular group, we named the fact that everyone has not experienced disparate access to opportunity in the same way. We named the fact that certain groups face higher barriers to opportunity, sometimes because of where they live geographically, if they live in a rural area, but sometimes because of very intentional choices that have been made around public policy, sometimes because of racism. There are many reasons that people with different backgrounds, especially people of color, as well as those who have disabilities, people who've been long-term unemployed were another group that we named, and certainly people who've been criminal justice system involved were some of the groups that our stakeholders named, right, left, and center, acknowledging those groups face a harder pathway than everyone else. We can disagree about the right remedies, but that that is just a fact. And so we put that into our principles early on, and then that was a helpful filter to put any of the proposals we wrote up against and say, does this proposal move the ball for those groups we just named to face all of these hurdles or not? If it doesn't, if it doesn't close any of those opportunity gaps, then maybe we haven't quite gotten it right. Mm -hmm. And so it was useful as a, as a test for us. Um, so that was one, I think success was writing those. Another important one was, we broke the issue down into three component parts. One was um, increasing basic financial security. So the group was very interested in a set of creative solutions to just stabilize people in a basic way before we can think about what is moving up over time look like? What is achieving a promotion and a career pathway look like if I'm worried I'm going to be evicted and then my kids are pulled out of their school and, and we're facing instability? So there was a set of work around that. Secondly, there was a set of work around workforce, and this is where the, the business players we had involved were very important. We live in a capitalist economy. We people have to get up and go to jobs. We have employers who provide those jobs and who and who pay the salary and benefits of workers. Their voice was very, very important. Even the the actors in the room who are quite critical of large employers acknowledged um, that we need their engagement. We need their ideas. Better to have them in the tent as a part of the conversation. And then thirdly was, um, okay, then what is a quality job? And those were the hard conversations about wages and benefits that we got into. Um, and I think the fact that we produced a set of solutions in all three of those is a huge victory and in a group that included representatives from such diverse groups. There are places where we would have liked to have gotten farther. And there were places where, for example, on wages, the group agreed that the basic federal minimum wage is not enough right now and that it probably should be higher. We were unable to agree on a specific number we could all call for. If you were only working with stakeholders who were largely oriented like you, could probably come to an agreement on that. This was different. This was hard. But the group did acknowledge that where appropriate, regionally, there should be increases in wages that would allow for people to have a sustainable way of life and live with dignity, and that people who work full-time should probably not be poor. Um, we think, although that is a basic standard to cross, it's it's currently not reality in our country. And so if we, in fact, adopted those ideas, that would be a really big deal. And another important piece that really comes across is how critical relationship building is to the success of the process itself within the project, but then it also its impact beyond. So I was wondering if you could share a little bit more about what characterizes the kinds of relationships that were built and sort of what happens beyond a project. 
Absolutely. Um, one of our goals here is to create the connective tissue organically that could result in many things that we would not be able to predict. So the projects produce a work product that then could be used by policymakers. It could be used by actors in the private sector. That's the goal from, from the beginning of the project. But there are always creative things that happen that we could not have predicted. Um, there are now working relationships in the stakeholder group that we convened between worker advocacy groups and the U.S. Chamber representing employers around the country. Several of us from the dialogue went to a conference Walmart was putting on at their headquarters in, in Bentonville, Arkansas, shortly after. And, you know, one of the folks that went as part of the group, her organization had had a very adversarial relationship with Walmart prior. Well, she didn't drop all of those objections because of the dialogue, but she was willing to engage because she'd built a personal relationship of trust with this one person who she realized was a person of good faith. Does that solve every difference and problem in the world? Of course not. Is it a big deal to have that person's contact info and a welcoming voice on the other end of the phone? I think so. That didn't exist before. Um, and some of the things that some of the private employers were able to implement or, or beef up or move on as a result, as a very clear impact of the dialogue, were informed by the rich 360-degree perspective of the other people at the table that they didn't know before the project started. You know, we can't control macroeconomy, what policymakers will do at any given moment, but if there's a foundation set with a set of really good ideas on a shelf that was built by a group like this, that can be quite powerful. So there are now conversations going on where people at least have some open lines to each other that they would not have had in the past that allow for more constructive conversation versus playing this game of telephone. And that's really helpful. What kind of pushback do you get um, from people? What are some of the questions people have about this process and what have been your responses to that? Sure, I, I think one is that this takes time and for lots of good reasons and for some less good ones, uh, things move fast. Um, so the idea that someone would step back and engage in repeated, uh, you know, day long, day and a half long facilitated conversations, that's an enormous ask, it's a lot. Right, that's a lot of sweat equity. And so there are many people who would say, like, look, I kind of know the solutions, I'm gonna push forward. Building a couple of other allies would be great, but time is short. And so that's definitely a pushback. Um, you know, a legitimate critique, I think, given in a culture that moves this quickly. I think though, once you spend some time in these rooms, getting to step back and not be reacting to the stuff in your social media feed, and even kind of turn that off a little bit, and think and speak deeply uh, about these issues and what's underneath them, the values people hold. That is really powerful and so rare that people kind of crave it. But it's a fair critique that this does, it does take time. And there are urgent challenges right now. And so we absolutely want people to be moving on them in the short term, but we also want to create space to think about what a durable cross-sector solutions look like mm -hmm. as well. Right. Yeah, I would add to that that like there's a unique type of pushback that we're experiencing in this current national political context and moment where people feel like there's a you know sense of emer emergency and urgency that the democracy is in crisis and that people feel like it's better to fight than to talk um, or that they can only really be addressing that the house is on fire and dealing with the short term. And you know the way we respond to that is that like we want to encourage a both and approach, right? We understand that there are unique crises in this current moment, and that people need uh, feel the need to advocate and to you know respond in the short term, and that you know even in a year from now, for example, after the election, like there's still going to be a tremendous amount of divisions that remain. There's still going to be difficulty in moving issues forward. And we need to, to take steps now and, and into the future to really try to stitch the country together to overcome these deep divisions um, that are probably going to be more exacerbated in the near term. 
and that we need new leaders, we need new ideas and new processes to address the current very fractious state of the country and the kind of toxic nature of the discourse and the hatred on both sides. And that um, responding to the short term will not actually get at those bigger long-term needs. So I think, you know, it's it's easy to get into either or thinking. And I mm -hmm. think it's also easy for people's future orientation to shrink in a moment of crisis where they can't even necessarily see two, three years from now. So it's hard to think about investing in something over an extended period of time. If I could bring this to a close on sort of a little more personal level, we can see where this takes us. Um, what would you say in your engagement in this work is something that you've developed a sort of a deeper or a deepened appreciation for it? Yeah, I think one of the big takeaways for me is how um, the conditions that are created um, can set something up for success or not. So like all the work that we do even before people come to their first dialogue meeting of helping to frame the problem in a way that's going to promote collaboration, helping to create norms of collegiality and um, respect that some of maybe why it's so difficult for people to work across difference is because the conditions that they need for that to be effective are not always in place. And there isn't always someone responsible for creating those conditions. And that it takes a lot of time and that that's something that's inevitable. It's not good or bad. It's just there's no real way around that. The relationship building is meant to be a time-intensive process and that it's valuable time. But I think this idea of like preparing and setting the conditions up for collaboration is super important for success. Like I said before, I think listening across difference in constructive ways is really hard. On the optimistic front, people are capable of a lot. I think... I, not that I didn't believe that before this work, but it's been underlined and deepened seeing it up close. People are capable of quite a lot. They're, they're capable of thinking deeply, um, stretching themselves, even when all of their incentives are pushing them in another direction that's not toward engagement. Human beings can, in relationship, accomplish a lot together. And I think we should all hold on to that and, and recognize that that's the way we've done big stuff and good stuff before in the past. And, and there's no reason we can't do that again. Um, you know, we get to decide what our society looks like, even though it feels like sometimes we're in this weird straight jacket of anger and misinformation. Um, those things are very real, but I think our tables are evidence that we get to decide what the future looks like. I, again, I don't want to, I don't want to paper over very real differences and I don't want this to sound like kumbaya. That's not what it is. It's not about people leaving a one day meeting and suddenly agreeing about everything. That's absolutely not what's going on, but it's about uh, deep relationships being built so we can talk through things versus going to war <laughs> mm -hmm. all the time around everything. And so I think my, my personal takeaway is that um, we should expect more of each other. People are capable of a whole lot. And if we come to the table with that expectation and that willingness to listen across difference, which is really hard, we can actually uh, we can get somewhere. Great. Thank you both, really, for, for sharing with quite a bit of depth some of the work that you do.